Hello all, I'm Kimberly LaBerge, and this is Morbid Medley, your one-stop shop for the bite-sized bizarre. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome to our very first episode. This podcast is for horror aficionados like me. I noticed that I jump between half a dozen podcasts just to visit all the ins and outs of the genre. Film and book reviews, academia and think pieces, horror fiction, urban legends, and more. Morbid Medley is a place where you can get a little bite of all of it in one place. Each episode will have short segments on horror from all angles. Check out the show notes to skip around or listen through for a taste of everything. Today's episode features the following pieces. Jenna Ortega, Scream Queen of 2022 by Kyle David Perry. Catsaridophobia by Dylan Livingston. Kimberly's Roundup. Theories of Film Violence by Tiff Polzine. And Resurrection Mary by the Shadow Carriers podcast. I am thrilled to launch this episode with a bite from Kyle David Perry. Kyle is one of the great minds in film and theater studies in the Midwest, and more so, one of the kindest people I'm lucky to know. They're one of my favorite people to dive deep into a film with, and this month, they sent in their piece, Jenna Ortega, Scream Queen of 2022. Final girls are pillars to slasher franchises, and Kyle frames the 20-year-old actress as the new blood that keeps these stories alive. Jenna Ortega, my nomination for Scream Queen of 2022. The following contains spoilers for Scream 2022. Have you ever seen the Disney Channel original TV series Stuck in the Middle? How about the 2015 reboot series of Richie Rich? Have you ever even heard of Elena of Avalor? It's very possible you've seen Jane the Virgin, but what do all of these shows have in common? Besides their predispositions to a younger audience, they all feature the same future horror royalty. Between Zendaya and Selena Gomez, filming 50-plus episodes of family-friendly TV before you can drive seems to be a key to success these days. As long as you're lucky enough to avoid the mistreatment of child performers by the media, the companies that hire them, and sometimes their own parents. As scary a story as that can be, we're instead focusing on the scary stories that star my nomination for Scream Queen of 2022, Jenna Ortega. The legacy of the Scream Queen dates back as far as the 30s with Fay Ray in the original King Kong, though perhaps the first and most famous example of what we consider a Scream Queen these days is Janet Leigh in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Wikipedia has 62 Scream Queens listed on their online article on the subject, including Ortega, as well as eight men, aka Scream Kings. The most iconic name on that much shorter list is Bruce Campbell of Evil Dead fame. It's an impressively comprehensive list, featuring all stars like Heather Langenkamp from Wes Craven's original Nightmare on Elm Street, and perhaps the most famous scream queen, Jamie Lee Curtis, who portrays the legendary babysitter-turned-badass Laurie Strode in John Carpenter's Halloween. If you search the term scream queen on IMDb, these two appear at the top of the list. Being Janet Lee's daughter and a Halloween franchise mainstay for over 40 years has made Jamie Lee Curtis utterly synonymous with the title but all good things must come to an end. Curtis's seventh and final outing as Laurie Strode, aptly titled Halloween Ends, comes out just this month. Even with Strode in the spotlight for what appears to be the last time, Jenna Ortega managed to take Scream Queen's center stage. Among her performances, she's given off big, terrified babysitter energy like Curtis's early days, and she's also served scrappy, kill-the-killer final girl energy like Langenkamp's Nancy. In addition to her wide range, she also brings a grounded, modern thriller quality to every scene she's in. It makes her extremely castable, as seen by her filmography in 2022. 
Jenna Ortega has had a breakout year, but her foot in the door of the horror genre has been firmly in place since before her Disney days. At the tender age of 10, she had filmed a small part in James Wan's Insidious Chapter 2, where her young character could see ghosts. A year later, she contributed some additional voices to an episode of a personal fall staple of mine, Over the Garden Wall. In the following years, she cut her teeth on Netflix original projects like Babysitter, Killer Queen, and the second season of the hit stalker drama, You. The full-blown shriek she hits in the former should have been a sign for things to come. Ortega's run of the 2022 horror scene has been nothing less than sensational, starting the year off strong with the fifth installment of Scream 2022. Although she's not the first former child star to open a Scream movie, her character is the first ever to survive that opening scene, let alone make it to the next sequel. Seeing her on screen with legendary final girl Nev Campbell just feels right. Depending on her character's fate in Scream 6, she may have found her own home franchise. Even if she does only last one more film, it will be a blast to see her back in Woodsboro in 2023. After Scream, Ortega joined the likes of Britney Snow, Scream Queen contemporary Mia Goth, and relative newcomer Anthony Miscuddy, better known as Kid Cuddy, in Ty West's new A24 slasher, X. X would go on to gross over 10 times its modest $1 million budget. In addition to those two horrific hits, she has an unexpected cameo in the Foo Fighters horror comedy Studio 666. With that movie's release date squarely in between Scream and Dex, there was a week in March of 2022 where it was difficult to avoid Jenna Ortega if you went to the movies. Between the three aforementioned movies hitting video on demand this summer and the release of the satire horror flick American Carnage in July, Jenna Ortega has become virtually inescapable this Halloween season. The grand finale of this horror takeover has Ortega returning to Netflix as Wednesday Addams in a new live-action series directed by none other than Tim Burton. She'll star alongside Louise Guzman, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and the original cinematic Wednesday herself, Christina Ricci. It's worth noting that she did all of this before the age of 20. 20 happens to be the age that both Langenkamp and Curtis were when their first horror movies hit the big screen. Now that Jamie Lee Curtis's final Halloween has killed its last victim, a passing of the torch seems appropriate. With a birthday just a few days before October, it almost seems like Jenna Ortega was born to play Scream Queens and Final Girls for the next 40 years. It has been so thrilling to watch the resurgence of the slasher in the wake of elevated horror taking precedence in the past few years. I can't wait to see what Ortega has in store and, moreover, how the schematic of the Final Girl herself has changed in the new era. But more of that down the line. Our next bite is a submission by Dylan Livingston, and it makes my skin crawl. I spent two years living in an inexpensive apartment where, when we would advocate for our completely unreasonable needs, you know, like plumbing, we would be ignored by management since we were lucky enough to be staying there at all. Dylan's piece drops you into an apartment complex with thin walls, dim lights, and uninvited guests. Catsaridophobia by Dylan Livingston Thump Ted grabbed the book, wincing when he saw the gob of cockroach innards stuck to the back. Goddamn roaches. Ted was fed up as he used his sleeve to wipe off as much of the corpse flesh as possible. To an outward observer, the book was flawless, but Ted would always see the crushed insect when he looked at that copy of Flowers in the Attic. Ted had lived in low-income housing his whole life. His mother was disabled from a trauma in her youth, which, 
led to her marriage to Ted's father, an abusive alcoholic who couldn't make a paycheck stretch through one week, let alone two. Ted would have been the type of son to stay home to protect his mother, but she wouldn't have it, and took the easy way out when Ted was fifteen. No one would blame Ted for leaving his father that very night, though Ted blamed himself every day for not attending his mother's funeral. There were few options to make money for a fifteen-year-old without parental consent, so he ended up working part-time in a nickel mine, which left him with a serious chronic bronchitis within six months. This just made it easier to justify his welfare applications, which barely kept him afloat. If only he could just breathe properly. Maybe he could hold down a real job for more than a week or so, but Ted had come to terms with his life. Things could always be worse. He didn't mind the constant sounds of his neighbors through the walls. The projects were like that, with walls as thin as paper. He didn't mind the subway less than a block away. It shook his walls and sometimes woke him up at night, but he always knew the time, thanks to the subway schedule taped to his wall. The price was right, allowing him to stretch his disability checks just far enough to afford a bite to eat every now and then. The one thing he couldn't stand about his living situation were the damn roaches. Ted never really got used to living with the strange bedfellows constantly nearby. When he first moved into the projects, his first night was torture. Every little thing he felt caused him to nearly overturn his bed. The first week, he got a total of 15 hours of sleep, if that. But it's possible to get used to just about anything. Ted had himself trained to ignore the little beasts walking across his bare flesh by telling himself it was just the sheep shifting slightly, or a rogue gust of wind moving the hairs on his arm. He would still be startled awake on occasion when they crawled on his face, but you had to draw the line somewhere. During the day, the apartment was tolerable, but night played havoc with Ted's nerves when he needed to turn a light on for any reason. It was like a police officer interrupting a high school party. Dozens of the creepy little bugs would appear, seemingly from out of nowhere, and skitter back into hiding, making the room look just like any other. Ted knew otherwise. Every room in his building was thoroughly infested with the disgusting little beasts. When he retired for the night, he would scour his bedroom, looking for any sign that his de facto roommates were near. But he knew they were always there, just out of sight, waiting for the darkness to arrive. He'd brought the situation up to Mike, the building super, more than once, and the answer was always the same. The building is sick. There's only so much we can do. If it's so bad, just move. Ted held none of the cards. Mike knew full well that Ted was flat broke and living on welfare, and Ted always got the impression that Mike didn't care. If Mike had his way, he'd burn the damn place to the ground for what little insurance would pay out. But deep down, he was really a good person who cared about the people in the building. He was willing to put down rat traps and have the place sprayed every two weeks, but it barely made a dent on the roach problem. To Mike's credit, he had brought in a group of new exterminators just last week who tried out some strange new bug bombs that were specially formulated for cockroaches. Ted noticed absolutely no change, except maybe a certain tang in the air of chemicals that made his toothpaste taste like sunscreen. Ted wasn't a fan of mint anyways, so maybe it was an improvement? Ted slumped back into his seat, a dusty old lime-green futon he found in a nearby alley a few weeks ago. 
Cracking the spine of his favorite V.C. Andrews novel, he lost himself for about an hour, before he noticed something in the corner of his vision. He was used to seeing little glimpses of movement and usually ignored it, but there was something different about this. This movement had a weight behind it. It was more substantial, larger. Had Ted's father finally tracked him down, ready to finish him off? He could have sworn he saw a beady yellow eye glinting in the moonlight that was distinctly non-human, and judging by the size, he may have to rearrange Mike's rat traps tomorrow. Ted clicked on the overhead light and followed the movement into the bathroom. Other than a few wayward roaches quickly scampering to safety into the cabinet or behind the mirror, the only movement he saw was the occasional drip from the tub faucet. His eyes must have been playing tricks on him, probably brought on by the horror novel he was reading. He loved letting the horror of the novels manifest in his mind, but even with his overactive imagination, he'd never actually created any festering ghouls or Cthulian elder gods, or worse, his father. Content that he'd thoroughly scanned the bathroom and found it free of werewolves, he chalked the strange vision down to too much coffee and too much Kathy Dollinganger. Feeling a yawn coming on, he decided it was time for bed. As Ted drifted off, his mind wandered back to his mother. She was beautiful and special in Ted's mind. In reality, she was a timid and fragile woman, quick to kowtow to any alpha personality. He had seen his mother shrink in the face of many men, Ted's father included. That look of defeat in her face was something Ted found all too familiar in his formative years, but little did he know that defeat ran so much deeper. In hindsight, he could see the change, but now he could only visit her in dreams. There she would always be, ready with the warm embrace that could only come from a mother. Ted's head slowly cleared as he realized the embrace he felt was not coming from his mother. He felt an unmistakable weight on top of his blankets, like a dog or a very well-fed cat. This terrified Ted because he didn't have any pets. So what was on top of him? He slowly reached for the bedside lamp and switched it on. His senses were accosted from all sides as his off-white walls were unexpectedly black and red and moving. In less than a second, the beasts surrounding him had inexplicably found their way to that place, just out of view where they would wait to come back with the darkness. But not before Ted saw, fully lucid, what it was that weighed down upon him. The largest cockroach in the world is the Megaloblata variant, which can grow up to 3.9 inches in length. This cockroach was ten times that size. As soon as the light turned on, the enormous creature hissed loudly and quickly ran towards Ted's face. Its sharp tarsi cut into Ted's face as it ran past, then up the wall where it disappeared suddenly. In another reality, Ted would have thought the experience was a waking nightmare or a sudden lapse of sanity, but Ted had the puncture wounds on his face as stark reminders of the disgusting monster running across it. After a moment of stunned disbelief, Ted bolted out of bed, shaking from head to toe. What had he just seen? He slowly made his way to the door, peeking around the corner, and flipped the hallway light on. He heard the telltale sound of skittering limbs, but couldn't bring himself to look. When he did peek around the corner, the hallway was blessedly empty, though Ted felt the space swell with the creatures he knew to be hiding 
ready to attack. Running down the hallway, he reached the kitchen, heart racing less from exertion than from sheer terror. This room felt safer, if only because he kept a dim light on even through the night. For those late-night cravings and cheese and crackers... Heading straight for the butcher's block on the counter, he pulled a long, sharp kitchen knife. Ted knew full well that it would take a lot to kill a four-foot cockroach, but he definitely felt safer with the Michael Myers special in his hand. Solitude was no friend for someone in Ted's predicament, but who could he turn to? His whole life he'd searched for the warmth that loneliness provided— feeding his anxiety like a wolf to strengthen him in his isolation, he only knew that his apartment was a tomb, and if he stayed there, he would only guarantee his permanent internment. As he reached to the door, it finally occurred to him, Mike, if nothing else, he might have some answers. Was that new experimental bug bomb treatment the reason these roaches had mutated? Opening the door, he was faced with another of the enormous creatures which ran straight towards him, Shock and fear caused Ted to lash out with his knife, but the roach reacted with incredible speed, dodging out of the way as it inherently sensed the movement of air currents created by the blade. Just as soon as it had appeared, it was gone. Ted needed to make it from his second-floor apartment to Mike's main floor suite. That meant a long hallway, followed by a dimly lit stairwell. Ted worked his way slowly down the hallway, his knife held in front like a torch, he could swear he heard the occasional tap-tap-tapping behind the walls around him, which made him twitch to the left and right like an unfulfilled addict. Wishing he'd brought a flashlight, he considered for a second going back, but he knew that was an impossibility. Ted steeled himself for what he might find and threw open the door to the stairwell. The coast was clear, so he inched his way in. Suddenly, he caught movement out of the corner of his eye. One of the devilish roaches had been waiting on the ceiling above him and jumped straight at him. Ted's heightened fear and anxiety helped him to react, stabbing upwards and cleanly severing the roach's head from its body. Instead of curling up dead, the headless creature skittered up Ted's body, knocking him to the ground and spurting its innards all over Ted's terrified face as it ran past and into the hallway. Ted recalled, in hindsight, a lesson he had learned in science class. Cockroaches can live for four days after being beheaded, only dying when they starve to death. Ted slammed the hallway door and turned his attention back to the stairs, working his way down slowly, eyes darting upwards and downwards in case another creature lie in wait. At the bottom of the stairs, he readied himself, then kicked the main floor entry door open, jumping back to the side to avoid what might be waiting. The light from the main floor hallway was blindingly bright. Damn that Mike for using all the good bulbs on his floor, leaving the rest of the building so poorly lit and perfect for ambushes from carapaced predators. Escaping into the well-lit hallway, Ted slammed the door behind him, breathing heavily with rasping nickel lung and sweating profusely. There was a clear shot to Mike's suite, so Ted made a run for it. He rapped hard on the door. Had he awoken the neighbors? Ted realized this was the first thought he'd given of anyone else in his building. Had they become the victims of these foul beasts? Knocking again, Ted began to worry that Mike might be out of the building. Who else would be able to help him at this hour? Ted resolved that something had to be done and drove his shoulder hard into the door. Intense pain shot through his arm from his shoulder to his wrist as the door refused to budge. That always seemed to work in the movies, but all that happened was that Ted's shoulder would probably hurt for weeks. No, that wasn't true. Something had happened. Ted noticed that the door latch had cracked severely. One good kick should do it. 
Ted channeled his inner Bruce Lee and kicked with all of his might, risking yet another injury. The door crashed open, exposing the sights inside, and Ted was far from ready. He had found Mike. The room was filled to brimming with disgusting, writhing creatures surrounding the bloody, lifeless body of the closest thing Ted had to a friend. Mike's eyes had been plucked out. His left arm and head were dangling precariously from small lengths of flesh, like a macabre teddy bear who'd been the victim of a childhood tug-of-war. From the shadows behind, slowly, a lumbering figure emerged. Cockroaches don't have queens, but this was obviously some kind of leader. Twelve feet of slow, deliberate monster raised up and hissed, staring right at Ted. For a split second, he saw his father's face in the visage before him. His eyes darted from side to side. For now, he was safe, knowing that the creatures wouldn't readily enter the well-lit hallway. As Ted's sanity was slowly dwindling, just below him, in the basement, plans were underway. A sacrificial roach quickly fried like a gigantic onion ring as it chewed into the service entry wire, shutting off all the power to the building. As its brain and body cooked, perhaps the last thing it heard were the screams of Ted, now fully engulfed by darkness, becoming a part of the swarm of victims of the lower class. Gross. Something makes me chuckle about the revolt of the potentially radioactive cockroaches living in the city. In a longer version of this piece, I would love to see more detail and context to the financial complexity of living on disability and context around the unreliable narrator's biased view of his mother's meekness. But as a short-form foray into a socially contextualized creature feature, Dylan's story effectively makes me want to vacuum up any critters in my room. Now let's get into the things that I've read and watched in this past month that are worth mentioning. These are going to be rapid-fire My Two Cents reviews. There won't be overt spoilers, but I will allude to some of the content, so proceed with caution. I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ian Reid. I read this book and it shook my world. I finished it and made my fiancé immediately read it the next day. I haven't watched the 2020 Netflix movie yet, but from the research I've done on the two, I highly recommend you read the book. The entire story is told almost entirely through thoughts and minimal mundane action, which unfolds into extreme tension, unease, and atmosphere. I held my breath for like 45 pages. The ending changes the whole story so much that I immediately jumped in to skim it again. Highly recommend. Smile 2022 I was a victim of the absolutely cringy TikTok advertisements the movie put out early in their marketing material, so I came in with a bias against it. I will say, with their small production budget, it looked much better than I expected, and I enjoyed Sosie Bacon's leading performance. However, the unscary imagery is pushed into a jump scare factory, which I hate. The metaphor feels very heavy-handed, and somehow is also entirely abandoned in the climax of the film. Lastly, the marketing makes no allusion to just how much trauma and suicide is heavy in this movie, which may be jarring to some viewers. Overall, it was fine, but forgettable. The Troop by Nick Cutter. Lord of the Flies meets Zombies, this book is straight-up nasty. If you're a fan of gore and body horror, this one's for you. It follows a Boy Scout troop on a remote island as they are exposed to a highly contagious, extremely deadly parasite that changes your entire demeanor while eating you alive. 
The interspersing of news articles from after the incident bring tension and scale into the small ensemble horror. I heard that James Wan's production company got the rights to make the movie, and I believe that this is a perfect candidate for the big screen. My Best Friend's Exorcism 2022 I have not read the book, but I did just watch the new Amazon release. I read that fans of the book found the movie unfunny and that it failed to capture the book's vibes. I, for one, loved this movie. It was a surprise to me when I saw it was directed by a man, Damon Thomas, because it is one of the very few movies that captured the scale of devastation that mean girl bullying is to high school girls. The embarrassments weren't a pity, they felt horrific, and exactly how high school feels. I found the humor to be spot on, the presence of an adult man with teenage girls in later scenes to be surprisingly uncreepy, and the characters endearing. Its only failing was intense queer coding, down to straight-up love confessions without confidently crossing the line into making the lead characters undeniably romantic. One could still claim that they're just besties. Still, highly recommend. Rock, Paper, Scissors by Alice Feeney Oh, so close, but so far. The book follows a couple on vacation at a mysterious church as a last-ditch attempt to save their marriage when they're snowed in and secrets pile up. This psychological thriller, while seeming on the nose at times, did keep me guessing and guessing up until its big final reveal, which was not at all what I'd predicted. However, it just left so much exposition for the end, and rushed the actual confrontation we were building to in, I kid you not, a single page. The pacing just really didn't work for me in hindsight, which is a shame because I was really in it until the end. The Fear Street Trilogy 2021 I will admit I didn't know that these were based on Goosebumps books until it was over. That explains a lot of the uh, young audience's feel to it. I do appreciate getting more and more overtly queer horror, but it's always a bummer when it comes at the cost of living in queer trauma. That said, these were a fun series of movies to watch as you dive into the curse that keeps the town of Shadyside plagued with killers through the ages. So-so films, but I could see myself loving them if I had them in middle school. That's it for this month's roundup. Let me know if you have book or movie suggestions I should watch and include in November. This next bite is called Theories of Film Violence by Tiff Pulzine. Tiff is an incredible academic and human being. She's a summa cum laude honors graduate of UW-Milwaukee with degrees in psychology and musical theater, a minor in dance, and a certificate in childhood and adolescent studies. That's a lot, and she's incredible at all of it. I know my favorite horror movies are slashers, so I definitely fall into the social category of consumers of violent media. But as violent media becomes more and more popular and pervasive, Tiff asks, why? Theories of Film Violence, Tiff Pulzine. While violence is widely considered morally incorrect and largely monstrous by the human population, it also appears to be an inevitable aspect of life. Although many of us may choose to not engage in physical violence in our daily lives, the majority of us have viewed violence on screen. In fact, we seem to have a fascination with film violence, and the changes to the realistic portrayal of this violence throughout the years are astounding. To illustrate these changes, one need only to look at the violent special effects from 50 years ago, which are frankly laughable or simply not shown, versus today. Furthermore, the portrayals of violent acts on screen have increased over time. A 2013 report from the American Academy of Pediatrics found that violence in film has more than doubled since 1950. And gun violence in PG-13 rated films has more than tripled since 1985. 
At present, it seems that great amounts of violence in films are not only tolerated, but also expected by the typical American viewer. Yet, while we appear to be fascinated and entertained by violence on screen, we continue to assert that it is morally incorrect, creating a dissonance between what we claim to dislike in contrast with the media we choose to consume. Investigating the theories behind why violence is used so heavily and successfully in film allows us to learn why it appears to be a hallmark of the human condition. One of the most popular claims created and favored by society is that films are heavily violent because the entertainment industry is violent. There is certainly some statistical support for the thought that the media is obsessed with violence. One study of high-grossing movies found that 90% included a portion in which the main character is involved in violence, demonstrating the consistency with which films incorporate it, particularly with their protagonists, the very characters the audience is persuaded to empathize with and root for throughout the film. This idea easily gains acceptance because it places the blame for constant displays of film violence on the ambiguous mass of media, rather than suggesting that it is the fault of the people. Although this belief may appear as favorable, as it relieves us of responsibility and self-reflection, it is far from infallible. Unfortunately, the media serves to react to and frame the human experience, not create it. After all, media is meant for consumption, and introducing new topics to society is not a productive model when mass consumption is the goal. Therefore, I cannot intelligently claim that this societal hope is rooted in truth. Another thought which helps audiences avoid confronting the possibility that they indulge in film violence for morally compromising reasons is the idea that they flock to violent films to learn. A psychological concept coinciding with this thought is threat simulation theory, which states that dreaming about threatening events has a biological function. Those who have experienced trauma are more likely to also experience threatening dreams, suggesting that these dreams serve to aid people who have faced trauma in remaining vigilant of possible threats in the future. Perhaps violent film viewing also serves a biological function in allowing audiences to feel prepared for potential threats. This seems to have support as, when a female student was murdered at an American campus, the attendance at a nearby cinema screening of the film In Cold Blood went up by 89%. Students may have attended the film to make sense of and learn how to operate in the dangerous world around them. However, while threat simulation theory has some support, it has also garnered ample disagreement. It remains unclear if having threatening dreams is truly a biological mechanism used for survival or simply a reaction to experiencing trauma that does not aid in self-preservation. The students viewing In Cold Blood may have attended the film to simply see their current experience being reflected on screen, rather than to prepare for the possibility of violence. Some may have even been enticed by the recent violence and felt primed to seek out more. Assuming that viewers of violence attend films solely to learn is highly flawed, the intentions of audience members are likely to be vastly different. Furthermore, film serves a primary purpose of entertaining, not teaching. And this difference in purpose illustrates the perspective that violence is clearly not showcased solely as a way to hone the moral compass of humanity or prepare us for potential threat. While attending violent films with the intention to learn may be one motivating factor, it is certainly not the only reason for heading to the movies. One of the strongest arguments for why we enjoy participating in film violence is that there's a genetic basis for aggression that we can no longer indulge in without societal consequence. In watching violence, we have the ability to relive those aggressive desires in a socially acceptable way by living through the experiences of the characters on screen. There's a variety of evidence to support this theory as humans and chimpanzees share violent urges, suggesting that human violence has long evolutionary roots. In fact, it is this inherited propensity for killing that allowed hominids and chimps to be such good hunters, showcasing that our violent tendencies were largely a survival mechanism in the past, and these same tendencies remain at present. This natural capacity for aggression 
is coupled with an enjoyment for this violence, as research from Craig Kennedy of Vanderbilt University demonstrated. An individual will intentionally seek out an aggressive encounter solely because they experience a rewarding sensation from it. This shows that aggression, on its own, is motivating. Clearly, the most likely theory for why we enjoy film violence is that we are simply a violent people. We claim to wish for peace and prosperity while simultaneously entertaining ourselves with destruction. Although we'd like to believe that we are born good and then compromised by the harshness of the world, a narrative often portrayed in society which showcases children as the image of innocence, the truth is that we are born primed to participate in and accept and enjoy violence. Although we do have the capability to regret our actions, we often choose to justify our actions so as to enjoy the violence we create and throw our regret to the wayside. Film violence is simply the media holding a mirror to a naturally violent humanity and providing us with the entertainment we yearn for. It is difficult to accept this narrative, however, because it means that we must recognize that we all have the capability to be violent monsters, the ones we claim to hate. It seems to contrast a study which found that 98% of people think that they're among the nicest 50%. This shows that people often attach goodness to their self-identity. Admitting that one is violent, therefore, results in cognitive dissonance. Unfortunately, while it would be easy to view ourselves as either good or bad and situations as either black or white, it is more accurate to recognize that the human experience cannot be parsed into neat categories. We can, and are, both good and bad, sometimes simultaneously. So, what do we do? Do we abandon all attempts for peace, knowing that it will only be a temporary achievement at best? Do we set lower expectations for what humans have the potential to be so as to not be constantly disappointed? Should we learn to accept the fact that we are violent and allow ourselves to indulge in these violent tendencies both on and off screen, regardless of the resulting destruction? Hopefully the resounding answer in your head is no. While we are certainly capable of violence, and understanding this potential for destruction is essential to acknowledging what it means to be human, we are also equally capable of doing good. In fact, there is far more virtue in doing good in spite of our natural tendencies towards violence than if we simply were inherently good to begin with. I choose to place my hope in this potential for goodness, however temperamental it may be. Thank you so much, Tiff, for that insightful analysis. I mean, what do you guys think when you watch violent films? Why do some movies have us rooting for the killers? Do you believe that we are all inherently violent and that we're living through something? Or that it's something that we're learning from? These theories all are going to stick with me the next time I'm watching a gory slasher. Message us on socials. Let's talk about it. The upcoming bite is a special excerpt of Season 1, Episode 2 of Shadow Carriers, a ghost story podcast. Their team also leads ghost tours and haunted experiences. Find them at Shadow Carriers on all platforms. I know one of the Shadow Carriers hosts, Orion Cooling, as an avid equity, diversity, and inclusion advocate with a strong focus on accessibility and fitness and the arts. This story, Resurrection Mary, explores the many iterations of the Chicago urban legend of the vanishing hitchhiker. I'm Orion Cooling, and I'm Zach Meyer, and this is Shadow Carriers. 
Shadow Carriers is a curated collection of Disturbia assembled by two lifelong storytellers, sonically mixed to bring you into the darkness and out again. We invite you to sit with us in the shaft of moonlight and, if you're brave enough, to step into the shadow with us. It's hour four of your Uber shift. You've been pushing hard the last couple of months. Work your day job, then errands and chores, then quick dinner, then log as many hours as you can behind the wheel at night to pull in extra cash. Then, do it all over again tomorrow. The days have been getting shorter for a while now, and the temperature is on that all too familiar downward slope. The radio knocks you out of a haze with an abrasive holiday commercial. You hit the console with a little more force than you intended to turn it off. City driving. You'd avoid it if you could, but this is something you can do to help with money. Just pay down your debt, provide extra for the holidays. This is something you can do. The app pings at you. A pickup at the Willowbrook Ballroom on Archer Avenue. It's farther away than you want, but you just dropped off people at Midway. You're close enough. You accept the fare and start heading over. You finally turn down Archer Avenue, and the rider cancels. Damn. You pull into the parking lot under the Willowbrook Marquee sign to turn around, and the open field next to it reminds you. The ballroom burned down in 2016. That's odd, you think, as you start moving up the avenue towards I-55. You glance down to check your app again and look up just in enough time to see her in front of you. She's in the middle of the road, white dress, white eyes. You hit the brakes hoping it was a trick of the light, but cringe as a noise you've never heard before but instantaneously recognize as the sound of someone going under your car. Horrified doesn't cover the state you're in. You throw open your door, desperately trying to dial 911, but right before you hit call, you stop. There's no one there. No body on the pavement, no damage to your car, nothing. Just you, stopped in the middle of the road. Phone in hand, you frantically search the surrounding area. Nothing. The only evidence of the event are the snake-like tire treads on the pavement and the smell of hot rubber. You lean back against your car, your heart pounding in your chest, your hands shaking. A wave of relief and nausea roll over you. In the darkness, your headlight illuminates a gate on the side of the road. Resurrection Cemetery. The Willowbrook Hall was once dubbed O'Henry Park. It was the place to dance the night away. Throughout its time, O'Henry Park would host the likes of the Glenn Miller Orchestra, Count Basie, Doris Day, and other music titans of the 1900s. People would flock to this hall and dance to the early hours in the morning so it was very common for cab drivers to run along the route late at night. Slowly, stories started to spread of someone the locals dubbed Resurrection Mary. They drive down Archer Avenue, late at night, around closing time, and see her. She was on her way to a dance. Coming back from the ballroom. On her way home. Needed a lift. She was shivering from the cold. Staring straight ahead. Carefree. The stories would vary slightly, but her description was always the same. Walking along the street. Hot summer night. In the the rain. The snow. She wore a white dress. Always next to the cemetery there in Archer called... Resurrection. Resurrection. 
In ghost lore, she's called a hitchhiking ghost. More than 70 documented occurrences record her existence going back to 1914. The story picks up steam with the automobile, but the accounts of her appearances date all the way back to the time of horse and buggies. A cab driver named Ralph was interviewed in 1979 by the suburban trip for his experience. He picked up a young woman, young enough to be my daughter. As he was traveling up Archer, all of a sudden she jumped with a start. Here, here. Ralph slammed on the brakes, but I looked around and didn't see no kind of house. She pointed across the road to the left. There. When Ralph looked over, then looked back to her, the woman was gone. The car door never opened. May the good Lord strike me dead and never opened. As cars became faster and the picking up of hitchhikers diminished, hit and run cases increased. Two cases investigated by the police found clear outlines of a small framed figure, once in the grass and once in the morning dew on the cement. But again, no body was found, just the echo of a person lost from the story. In 1980, a driver passing resurrection at night saw a woman dressed in white inside of the fence of the cemetery, holding on to the bars of the gate. As the driver stopped to help with what looked like someone locked inside the cemetery, the woman vanished when they approached. In her wake, the bars of the gates that she was holding were left twisted and burned with indelible fingerprints in the metal. Word of these spectrally distorted bars got around, and after several weeks of teeming throngs of curious visitors clogging up the cemetery driveway for a look, the cemetery had the bars replaced. But instead of being discarded like scrap, rumor has it that they were relocated by the church and sent to the Vatican. Bars don't melt themselves, after all. For more than 100 years, witnesses have given her rides, hit her with her car, suddenly found her sitting in their back seat, and even danced with her. She's been connected to four real-life Marys throughout history, but none have been the perfect match. She is, after all these years, still a mystery. So what keeps her there, walking along that stretch of road? The most prevalent belief among locals is that she was a young woman who spent her last night on this side of the veil, dancing her cares away. Her young life ended by the automobile driving her home. Her story and the frequency of encounters have elevated her to a kind of royalty, making her one of the most well-known Chicago ghost stories. Thousands have tried to see her, record proof of her, to hold the bent and melted bars of the gate in their hands to feel a tangible substance to her story. Dozens have had experiences with her, ranging from panic terror to utter confusion. But every encounter with her carries the same story. A young woman, replaying the last night of her life, dancing under the ethereal moonlight, trying to safely return home. The way that night, so many, many years ago, should have ended for her. The Shadow Carriers podcast describes themselves as a sonic storytelling experience, and they couldn't be more right. I love how they approach ghosts, history, and communities with the context of social status, race, gender, and more. They're both respectful to the nuggets of truth in these legends, and entertaining to those of us who love a scary story. If you liked Resurrection Mary, please go check them out on all of their platforms. 
Thank you so much for listening to Morbid Medley. I love reading your submissions. If you have any short horror-related pieces that aren't true crime, I'm talking poetry, ghost stories, urban legends, film and book reviews, opinion pieces, or something I haven't mentioned, we would love to feature it on an episode. Send it over to morbidmedley at gmail.com and we'll consider it for a future episode. If you like this podcast, please, please, please post about it. Share it. Tell everyone you know. Because this podcast is submission-based, it will only get better and better with more listeners. If you leave us a five-star text review on whatever podcasting platform you use, I'll read one at the end of each episode. Lastly, to stay in touch, you can find Morbid Medley on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, all at Morbid Medley. Tag us and tell us what you thought of today's bites, or let me know what you want to see covered. I'm Kimberly LaBurge, and I'll see you in a month.